old Christair survived to satisfy my yearnings, but the sense of defeat was gone. Venice was no longer nostalgic for its magnificent past, but reveled in its exuberant present. Tourism had returned to the city in reasonable proportions, and I like to think that the Piazza San Marco, thronged once more with cosmopolitan visitors, in essence looked much as it must have looked to Canaletto. The city was still a true organic city, inhabited for the most part by native-born Venetians, living by its wits, as it always had, a port, and a place of noble presence. I suggest somewhere in the book, I think, that it might well aspire to be the capital of a united Europe. It was a happy medium, a balance between reality and pretense. Reality being the living city, pretense the tourist show. But by the nature of our times, in the end, pretense won. By the time it entered the 21st century, Venice had become, above all, a marvellous museum. Half the indigenous population had gone away to live on the mainland, cruise ships dominated the port, and the pressure of tourism had become so overwhelming that even Canaletto, who relished a crowd, might have been deterred. I relished a crowd too, as a matter of fact, but nowadays even I feel sometimes that the balance has been tilted too far. It first dawned upon me that Venetian reality was fading, when, in 1983, the four golden horses upon the façade of the Basilica San Marco were replaced by modern substitutes. They'd been up there for nearly 600 years. Looted from Constantinople, they were the very emblems of Venetian pride and triumphalism. But pollution, it seemed, was proving too much for them, and they were stored away within the building behind Four dull replicas replaced them up there, sadly short of new men. But by then, anyway, it seemed that nature and history were conspiring to corrode the old magic of Venice itself. The menace of the rising Adriatic tides grew worse every year. All too often streets were flooded, duckboards were out all over the place, and everyone sloshed around in gumboots. And mass tourism emblematic of the age, had fallen overwhelmingly upon the city. It was difficult, then, actually to like Venice, when one arrived on the Vaporetto at San Marco, to find the whole place jam-packed by a cacophony of tourists, blocking the bridges, swamping the piazza, drowning the café orchestras, and almost hiding from view those sad sham horses on the basilica. Even the city's fondest addicts were disenchanted then, even I sometimes felt like re-embarking upon the Vaporetto and going home again. I never did, though, never once. If there are times when I actually dislike contemporary Venice, I have never ceased to love the place, and I marvel still, as always, at its inextinguishable beauties of structure and setting as of atmosphere and meaning. Anyway, this book of mine is about Venice at a happier moment. It breathes, I like to think, though I say this shouldn't, a spirit of young and easy-going delight. I hope, as a record of old ecstasies, it will still find sympathetic responses, especially among those who, arriving at the Serenissima, fresh, young and exuberant as I did, will recognise their own pleasures in its words and hear a little of themselves in me. For although I've always thought of the book as reflecting my own times in Venice, Perhaps it reflects all Venetian times, really.
Venice by Jan Morris, read by Sebastian Comberti. Landfall. At forty-five degrees fourteen minutes north, twelve degrees eighteen minutes east, the navigator, sailing up the Adriatic coast of Italy, discovers an opening in the long low line of the shore, and turning westward with the race of the tide, he enters a lagoon. Instantly, the boisterous sting of the sea is lost. The water around him is shallow but opaque. The atmosphere curiously translucent. The colours.